I think I have everybody muted. Yeah. So you guys are, are free to chat amongst each other as you're doing by text right now. Um, we will have, so I think, I think we have basically everybody here. I might admit people as they join, but uh, first of all, thanks everybody for, for joining. This is already a hugely successful turnout, so I appreciate that. Uh, this is Robert, who has been a listener of the show for, God, I don't know. You tell me when you started listening, like forever ago. I've known you as long as I've been doing the stream, it seems like. Yeah, like four years or something. Yeah. So, And uh, he's called in a few times on Wednesdays, too, so people might have heard from him. But just a couple of quick announcements before we actually get into the lesson here. Um, number one... I did have several people message me who were interested in a recording because they couldn't participate live uh, or, you know, maybe you miss a lesson in the future. You want to catch up. So what we're going to do is is Robert is going to make a blog post for each week's lesson that will kind of summarize the content as he's already done for this week's lesson. And that will be on the Bible study page of my website. And the. Uh, Audio, an audio recording of that lesson will be posted as soon as it's done. So let's say that you missed this one, but you show up next week. You can just go to this week's blog post on the website and you'll have an audio recording to listen to. So that will be available. And then uh, the only other announcement I have is that with 50 or so people in here, the discussion portion and not having ever done this before, granted, I do the stream. I know how to do what I do and that's it. And this is not exactly what I do. So, um, the discussion portion at the end, I'm going to try to facilitate as best I can. I will give instructions for how we're going to do that once we get there. I expect it to be a little messy, so please bear with me. It's very possible, if not likely, that everybody who wants to speak won't be able to speak, but if it becomes you know, too, too difficult to deal with, um, we will figure out a way that is as fair and equitable as possible in the future, which is what we aim to be. Uh, so without further ado, uh, thank you guys for joining and, uh, it's, it's Robert for the next half hour or so. Oh, thank you, Matt. Hey guys. Um, well, um, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little bit nervous today. So if I struggle to get my words out, cut me some slack for the first day. Um, let me just tell you, I am. You know, I am a foreigner. You might want to end the Bible study right now, uh, which is why I have a weird accent. <laughs> you know, I lived in the U.S. for like 20 years, so I have this weird mix now between my foreign accent and my Texas accent. It's it's weird, uh, but bear with it. Um, okay, so today I'm going to try to get through some kind of introductory stuff, not introductory to me or to, to this event. I mean, introductory to the Bible. And then I'm going to try to get into John as quickly as I can. Um, and then in the future, I really will try to stick to scripture. But I didn't know who was going to show up today. I didn't know what kind of background they would have. Essentially, we may have people joining us today who don't even own a Bible, which is totally fair. It's totally fine. I just want to make sure that we're all kind of up to speed on some of the basics. And if you've been a Christian for 50 years, well, you know, you may know some of this stuff, but hopefully I'll, I'll be able to surprise you a little bit and maybe talk about some things you had not considered in the past. So without any further ado, let's just jump into it because I prepared a bunch of material for today. Uh, perhaps too much, but keep in mind, I used to be a college professor and my lectures were three hours long and they were over the tax code. So uh, this, is a <laughs> this is a challenge in its own way. Um, okay. So 
let's actually talk about the Bible for a second. That's like the most like Bible school, you know, answer ever. Talk about the Bible. Okay. So the Bible, um, what is it real quick? Um, in a sense, it's not a book in the sense that it's not like a novel, right? Like it's not like a Harry Potter book where it's just one writing. The Bible is a collection of writings. Uh, normally we would say there's, there's several or many books in the Bible. Um, but even that can be a little bit confusing if you've never looked into this. When we say there are several books in the Bible, um, several of those are also not, quote unquote, books in the sense that they have like a plot and a beginning and an end. Several of those, for example, are letters. Okay, So especially in the New Testament, the first four books really are um, kind of narrations that have a beginning and an end and a plot. Those are the Gospels. Um, and we're going to be covering one of those, the Gospel of John. But then, uh, well, and then you have Acts, which is also a story in that sense. You've got a plot, a beginning and an end and so forth. But then after that, you have a bunch of letters, uh, the letters of Paul, the letters of John, the, the letters of Peter. And then at the end, you get Revelation, which is harder to describe um, because it's, it's kind of it's apocalyptic literature. So it technically does also kind of have a story, has a plot, but it's harder to follow. It's very symbolic. Um, so again, I assume that most people know that, but I'd rather just, uh, say it and make sure that we're clear on that. So the, the first question I want to tackle is if you've never uh, looked into the Bible, if you've never studied the Bible, I assume that when you decided, okay, I'm going to read the first five verses of John, um, you were greeted with a very difficult question. You, you went to the bookstore, you went online and you just wanted the Bible, right? But you were, <laughs> you you had these options. It said the NASB, the NIV, the KJV, um, and maybe you thought, well, I just want the Bible. Like I don't, I don't even know what these things are. And they are the different English, the different English translations of the Bible. Okay, the New Testament. Because I'm not really going to talk much about the Old Testament, uh, not because I don't want to. It's just I got to kind of limit my my conversation to something we can manage. The New Testament was written in Greek, right? In the first century. So it would be Koine Greek. It's it's kind of an older form of Greek that people don't speak now. I think of old English compared to current English. And then the Greek has to be translated into English. And translation is actually, it's, it's kind of a science, it's kind of an art. Right. Um, and by the way, in my blog, I, I said I would cover textual criticism first and then Engle, English translations, but I'm going to reverse the order for the sake of time. So when you translate from another language, you run into very tricky issues. Um, let me give you a couple of examples just to kind of get you thinking on the right track. Let's, let's deal with English and Spanish. Spanish is my first language, so it's kind of easier for me to, to give examples of this kind. Um, there, there are several challenges. First of all, languages are not equivalent. So sometimes you may have a word in one language that does not exist in the other language. So when you translate, you kind of have to explain. Um, also, the grammar and the syntax might be different. For example, and this will happen in the Greek versus English. Some languages are gendered. 
in some languages are not. Uh, English is not gendered um, and Greek is. Spanish is also gendered. Um, now, when you translate from Greek to English, you drop the gender. Um, what's relevant about that is that in the Greek, the gender of the word can actually give you a clue as to what you're referring to. Um, and I'll give an example here in a minute. There's also different phrases that might make sense in a language and not in another. So again, let me, let me give a quick example of what could happen. Let's say that in English, we have two phrases. Um, one is, hello, how are you doing? Which in Spanish, I may translate as hola, como estas? I assume everyone is at least familiar enough with Spanish to kind of get that, right? But now let's say that in English, I say the following. I said, howdy, how do you do? In Spanish, I would probably translate it the exact same way, right? Hola, como estas? But notice that in that translation, I kind of lost all the flavor, right? Like in English, if someone says, hello, how are you? Or howdy, how do you do? You can tell something about the speaker. Um, but when I translated it into Spanish, because I can't make that distinction, now you can't. Um, or let's think of a, um, a different kind of issue. Let's say that in, in English, you say that a person is kind. Well, in Spanish, I don't have a word for kind. Not exactly anyways. I can get very close, but not exactly. Okay. Um, so why do I bring this up? Because to solve this issue, translations will go one of two ways. Either you're going to go with a more, uh, with a what's called a formal equivalence, which is to say, you try to translate as close as you can to word for word, or you're going to go with a more functional equivalence, which means you're trying to translate the meaning of the text, not necessarily word for word. Um, and then you kind of get something in the middle. And translations fall under this spectrum. Generally, the most word for word translation would be your NASB. So NASB. Um, and then on the more kind of thought for thought, meaning functional equivalence translations, you may get the NIV, the New International Version, which is hugely popular. Um, the other stuff you got to think about when you're looking at different translations is the language level, right? Um, the NIV, for example, is written at about a seventh or eighth grade level of language. The NASB is written more like at a, uh, a senior level, like 12th grade level of language. Now, um, I'm going to leave the, the discussion of translations there because I don't want to spend all our time on that. But why am I even bringing this up? Because if, you, if you've never read the Bible before, you were greeted with this choice. This is my quick advice on this. Uh, pick a translation that you can understand. Um, some people feel quite strongly that you should go with a translation that is more word for word, like the NASB. But maybe the language is too complicated. Maybe the sentences are structured in kind of an awkward way and it doesn't make sense to you. Well, use a different one. Go to the NIV. That's going to be much easier to read. Um, you know, and I know some people would strongly disagree with me on what I just said. They're like, no, 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 no. Stick with word for word. Everything else is sort of a paraphrase. Um, I, my opinion is if you're not understanding the text, then you're probably not getting a whole lot of whatever you're reading. 
Um, now, there are some things that maybe I would advise you against. Uh, there are some things that are actual paraphrases, like they're not trying to translate, they're legitimately just paraphrasing. Um, and I, like for example, the New Living Translation. Uh, no, actually, I, I take that back. The New Living Translation is not quite a paraphrase. I, I take that back, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Um, there are some like, would be the message. That's what I meant to say. The message is straight up a paraphrase. That's probably not what you should be using to study the Bible. Now, what am I going to be using? I'm going to use the NET, uh, the New English Translation. And the reason that I use that one is uh, it's actually not on the chart that I put on the blog, but it's literally dead center, uh, dead center between functional equivalence and formal equivalence. But what's cool about the NET is that it has a lot of footnotes that discuss the Greek, discuss the actual Greek. Um, and so if I really want to get into the Greek, I can just read the footnotes, which I always do. In fact, something that I've been working on for the last, I would say, year or so, I'm trying to read through the New Testament with every translator note, reading every single translator note, which is taking me forever. And I don't say that to brag. I'm just saying that to tell you, I really care about the original language. I really do try to understand the Greek. Um, but let's face it, not everyone has the time to do that. So pick a translation that you can understand. Um, it's, it's really, except for certain passages, it really should not make a large difference. Okay. Now, again, for everybody who's been a Christian for a while, this was nothing new. Um, but again, I'm trying to at least set a foundation. Now, let's get into something slightly more interesting here, um, which is, are all the translations translating the same Greek text, right? Because so far, I've kind of assumed that the only factor in this is, is, is the translation, is the person translating. Um but that's not actually the case. The Greek text is not always the same. And this is a very controversial topic that I'm going to try to cover very quickly, but I posted an article on the blog that's like 50 pages long. If you want to read about this at length, that article really is spectacular. Um, but let me go over this kind of quickly because I want to take the opportunity to address a question that I get often. I'm not going to say all the time, but I've heard this question several times, which is, has the Bible been changed thousands of times? Okay. And if you're a Christian, you've probably heard this before. You've probably heard it on YouTube uh, that you can't trust the Bible. It's been changed thousands of times. And this objection or this question or, or comment, whatever you want to call it, comes from um, essentially there's like a nugget of truth. It really is not true, but, but I see where it comes from, which is this idea of textual criticism. The idea is that we have hundreds, if not thousands of manuscripts of the Bible, okay, of the original Greek is what I mean. Uh, now we don't have what's called the autographs, the original text of let we don't have like literally the original gospel of John, right? We don't that that has been lost, which makes sense. It probably was written on papyrus, um, which does not last that long, certainly not 2,000 years, unless you get a very kind of odd situation. Think of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Maybe if this papyrus was put like 
in a vase that then was put in a cave and it happens to be in the middle of the desert where it almost never rains. Sure, you could, there's some chance of preserving a document like that. But in 99 out of 100 times, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of unreasonable to expect a document like that to last for 2000 years. But what we have is copies of it, right? Because essentially as, as the Bible started, and, and I say the Bible, when each of these books, the Gospels, the letters of Paul and so forth, started being disseminated in the region and in the world, they were copied. And what's neat is that this is the most copied documents from antiquity, right? We have, like I said, hundreds, if not thousands of copies. And we can look at all of them and compare them and essentially become very certain of what the original said. Um, in fact, when we look at all these documents and kind of put them together, in the process of doing that, it's called textual criticism. It doesn't mean that we're criticizing the Bible. It just means that it's the science of when a document, when the original of a document is lost, and we, we look at copies of it to determine what the original said. Okay, that is textual criticism. When we look at all these copies, uh, they don't exactly match. We get what's called textual variance, right? And it makes sense. These things were being copied by hand up until essentially the 15th century. And then you get into the printing press um, and this issue kind of goes away. But up until that point, you get these textual variants. I don't know why I put air quotes. That's actually what they're called. Um, and <laughs> here's where it's kind of funny that the fact that we have so many copies then gets kind of weaponized against the Bible because they say, oh, there's literally thousands, like 50,000 textual variants. Well, of course there are, because there's thousands of copies of the Bible, and all it takes is a misspelling for us to have a textual variant, right? Uh, so, of course, we expect this. Now, does that mean that the Bible has been changed thousands of times? No, it's actually quite the opposite. Um, of these textual variants, and, and let me give you an example. A textual variant can literally be a misspelling. Um, for example, in the English language, um, depending, sometimes you'll use the word A or the, or the word, and I'm just going to spell it A-N, depending on the word that follows, right? So I have a pencil, but I have an orange, right? I add a little N. Well, let's say that I'm copying a book and I dropped the, the N. So now it says I have a orange. That would be a textual variant. And people now would say, oh, you can't rely on the Bible because, you know, thousands of textual variants. As you can already see, this is kind of absurd, but let me give you some real statistics so you don't think that I am, um, I'm just being biased here. Textual variants can be of two types. Um, one, we would say, is it meaningful or not? Like, does it actually change the meaning of the text? And two, is it viable or not? Because there's some textual variants that would change the meaning, but we can tell that they're absurd, that they're a mistake. Let me give you a silly example. Um, Let's say that I wrote some text and said, I was walking through a vineyard and I got, I got hungry, so I ate a grape. Okay? And then somebody's copying this text and they say, I was hungry, so I ate. Uh, and I'm sorry, I couldn't think of a better example. This is going to be a little bit, I'm going to use kind of a bad word here, forgive me. But let's say that it says, I was walking through a vineyard and I ate a rape. It drops the G, okay? <laughs> That's utter ah! nonsense. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, but it was I thought I had everybody muted, but there was one verbal reaction that was uh, right on point. That was great. I don't even know. Sorry. <laughs> anyway. Well, forgive me for the uh, R-rated example. But what I'm getting at is if you read that, you would be like, it's clearly missing a gene. Like he clearly ate a grape. This is ridiculous. Okay. So um, textual variants that are not meaningful, meaning they don't change the meaning of the text at all, account for about 75% of the textual variants. And then textual variants that are not viable, meaning that they're absurd, that they're clearly incorrect, account for about 24% of these. So really it's only about 1% of these textual variants that are relevant that that we're like, yeah, maybe, maybe it says this, or maybe it says that. So the, the next question is, well, so if, if there is actually this 1% of textual variance, which is not to say 1% of the New Testament, it's 1% of the variance. So it's a very tiny percentage of the Bible. Um, would, are these like super scandalous, essentially? Or does one say Jesus is God and the other one says Jesus is definitely not God? No, <laughs> there, no major doctrine is affected by this 1% of textual variance. Um, they, um, to my knowledge, and I will be fair here, I have not gone through every, I have not read every single textual variant, okay? That, that would take quite a long time. It's the kind of stuff that people write their PhD on, and I, I, I don't have that kind of time. But to my knowledge, the only doctrine that, could potentially be affected by these textual variants would be the doctrine of fasting. Some of the verses that say praying and fasting, that word fasting may or may not belong there. So some of the emphasis on fasting maybe would drop. But notice how fine, like what a kind of, what fine a point that we're, we're talking about now. That Essentially, we are 99%, 99 of the New Testament. We know exactly what it says. It is exactly what it said in the original. And there's this 1% of places where we're not quite sure. And at worst, you don't fast as much. Okay, big deal. It, it, it really, and just in case you think that I'm being totally biased here, there, there's actually a very famous scholar by the, by the name of Bart Ehrman that uh, he lost his faith as he studied the Bible, and now he's very anti-Christian, but still his main focus is actually textual criticism. Um, and he gave a kind of this very renowned interview. He was being interviewed by somebody, I believe, on the radio, and he's criticizing the Bible about this and the other. And so the interviewer finally asked him, he says, oh, so what do you think like the Bible really said? And Bart Ehrman goes, who's a PhD and all that, by the way. He's like, what, what do you mean? He's like, well, you're saying that we have like an, all, all these doubts about the Bible. What do you think it really said? And Bart Ehrman, again, a very anti-Christian guy, he goes, well, I mean, pretty much what it says now. Like, <laughs> we are sure about 99% of it. So even the critics agree on this. Um, okay. You may think, why am I spending any time on this? Well, number one, because I actually really want to dispel that notion. I don't care if you're Christian or Jewish or atheist or whatever, but like pretty much all scholars will agree that 99% of the Bible is set in stone or 
I mean the New Testament, forgive me. 99% of the New Testament is set in stone. We know exactly what is said in the original. And now we're fighting about little, little stuff over here. Well, that brings me to kind of the end of this little summary of textual criticism, which is that um, there are two, well, three primary Greek texts on which the translations are going to be based on. Uh, one is called the critical text. The other one is the majority text. And the other one is the textus receptus, which I'm, I'm just going to call the text received because I don't want to sound pretentious. Okay. Uh, but that's what it means, by the way. Textus receptus is just Latin for text received. Um, well, when you look at the Greek manuscripts, there are essentially three families of manuscripts. One of those families is the Byzantine uh, family of, of manuscripts. Essentially, those, those manuscripts were, they were copied and kept um, by people in the Byzantine Empire. Right. The Byzantine Empire is the eastern half, so to speak, of the Roman Empire, which actually remained until the Middle Ages. Again, I presume everyone knows that, but if you don't, there you go. Then you have the Western texts, which come from kind of Western Europe. And finally, you have the Alexandrian texts that come from Egypt, as you can guess from the name, Alexandria being a city in Egypt. Well, most of the manuscripts we have come from the Byzantine tradition. This makes sense just from history. If you think about it, the way Christianity spread and then the things that happened, right? You, all of these writings happen in the first century. They kind of spread through the Roman Empire and then eventually Asia and Africa. But up until the third century and perhaps even a little later, you have intense persecution of Christians and in that persecution, these texts would be destroyed on purpose. Well, in the Western half of the empire, um, they, by the middle of the first century, they have switched to Latin. And so most of your copies that are going to come out of the Western half are going to be in Latin, not in Greek. In the Eastern half, uh, Greek was still perhaps not the main language, but still widely spoken. Um, and so the, the manuscripts were still kept in Greek in the eastern half of the empire. Then in Africa and Asia, eventually Muslims took over and they also persecuted Christians intensely and they would burn their scriptures, Christian scriptures is what I mean. Um, and so it makes sense that the Greek manuscripts that were preserved to this day are from the, mostly from the Byzantine Empire. Um, now, uh, another kind of neat uh, footnote here is that we have Byzantine manuscripts all the way back to essentially the fourth century. The, uh, well, the very late fourth century, if not the early fifth century. And right, they were copied by hand all the way up to the 15th century. And there's almost no variation between the copies in the fifth, 15th century and the, those copies in the fifth century, which also kind of goes to show the reliability of the copying of these manuscripts. Because some people, I, I think they try to say, oh, you know, they were inserting things and taking stuff out and taking all sorts of liberties. Well, we can demonstra demonstrably prove that in almost 1100 years, none of that happened. 
So I guess you could still argue that it happened in the first three or 400 years, but there's no proof that it did. But you could make the accusation if you want. I mean, that sure, that's fair. Okay. Well, and and I promise I'm nearly ending this, this part of the conversation. But what, what happens is that these Byzantine texts eventually kind of get consolidated in what gets called the textus, the textus receptus, the text received by a guy called Erasmus in 1522. Okay. And then the King James Version of the Bible is largely based on that Greek text. Well, fast forward to the 1800s, and in the 1800s, we discover two manuscripts that are that they are from the Alexandrian type. They come out of Egypt, although one is found in the Vatican and the other one is found in a convent at the foot of Mount Sinai, so essentially in Israel. Um, in these manuscripts, where they they were actually the earliest we had ever found, they were from about 350. Uh, BC. And so scholars said, hey, we got to really look at these and really assign some weight to them. And they had some minor disagreements with the Byzantine text. Well, some people really freaked out. Uh, and so three views developed, and, and I'll cover these very quickly. Some people said the text received is it. It is perfect. There's no mistakes in it. I'm sticking to that. Normally those people will say that King James Version only. Like I will only read the King James Version. Um, then there's other people who said, hey, the text received is not particularly special, but I still like the Byzantine text. They're the most reliable. And that's the general text. And then finally, there's people who said, hey, we got to take all these manuscripts into account. And really the Alexandrian ones being the earliest manuscripts are perhaps the most reliable. And I am grossly oversimplifying this conversation, okay? But for the sake of time, it's, it's hard to go into the details. Well, the people who, who took that last approach, they developed what's called the critical text. Most of your modern Bibles are based on the critical text. Um, and so like the NIV, the NASB, the ESV, pretty much anything out of the KJV is going to be based on that. Um I say this to say, if you ever encounter somebody who's like King James Version only, you know, they're putting a lot of weight on that Textus Receptus. Um, I think just to cover kind of some quick comments on this, um, the critical text, so the text that really all of us are going to be using if you use a modern English translation, um, there's one assumption that I really want to highlight to, again, give you a lot of confidence on, on the Bible, on the book that you have in front of you. One of the principles of, of developing the critical text is that if we have textual criticisms that are not easy to resolve, which again, it's just that 1%, it's a very minor issue. But if we are in that 1%, we are going to go with the text that is most difficult quote unquote, more anti-Christian, the one that would be harder to make sense of. Um, and so, because again, I, there's people I think who, well, I, I don't just think, I know that there's people who think that the Bible is like super biased because it's been, you know, it's kind of been doctored up by Christians. It actually couldn't be further from the truth. The text that we read today 
is largely kind of vetted by non-Christians, by these scholars who are actually quite anti-tradition. Um, so, so no, there's nothing in your Bible that is like pro-Christian bias. It is the original text. Now, whether that text is true or not is a different question, right? Like, that, that's a completely different question that I'm not trying to address today. But is this the original text that John wrote? When, in 99% of places, yes, it is. There's no bias here. There's no made-up stuff. Um, now, again, you've got to decide whether that text is true or not. But but we should be able to rely on the text in front of us as being the original text. And the last comment I'll say on this is that sometimes um, as you're reading your Bible, you may notice that it skips a verse. Like you'll be reading verse 35 and it may go to verse 37. And you may be like, what the heck? Like where did verse 36 go? Um, it's because that was... In, essentially in the Textus Receptus when we came up with verse numbers. But now that we have the critical text, we've decided that text was, that verse was probably not correct, not original. So we've taken it out. Okay. So if you see that, that's what that means. So I hope this has been at least slightly edifying as far as where the Bible comes from, how reliable it is. Um, and I don't have any strong opinions on which English Bible translation you use. Uh, of course, if you use the King James Version, you're going to have a few verses that I don't have in my Bible. None of them are going to make a huge difference. They just will not. So I think we can get along and be friends and study the Bible together. Okay. I know that I'm going kind of quickly, but I, had, I, I really want to get into John. So let's, let's talk about John, the, the Gospel of John right quick, and then I'll open this discussion to questions. Um. And uh, and all that good stuff. Um, okay, so when was John written? This, okay, these questions for the last two centuries, essentially, people argue about this stuff all the time, no matter which book of the Bible you pick. But somewhere, I would say between 70 AD, perhaps 60 AD at the earliest and 90. The consensus among scholars is that the book of John was written about the year 90 uh, AD. Um, and I think perhaps earlier in my discussion, I said BC when I meant AD, I'm realizing, uh, yes, when I was talking about the fifth century, I said BC and I meant AD. Forgive me about that. I just, I just caught that mistake at any rate. Joe was written about the year 90, um, AD, um, the scholars are a lot of the scholars of the Bible actually, like I said, they're they're quite anti-tradition, and so there for a little while, I would say in the late 1800s and early 1900s, people were trying to say that the Book of John was actually written a lot later than that. It was not written by John, and you know, they they although tradition always said that it was written by John, it was written quite early. Um, I feel like some of these discussions have actually been put to bed because. In the last few decades, we discovered a copy of John, a partial copy, not an entire, but a partial copy of John in Egypt that dates to the early 100s. And for the text to have made it to Egypt and have been copied by that time, uh, it actually had to be written, written essentially in the 90s or so. So I feel like that discussion has to some extent been put to bed. Now, who wrote the book of John? Like I said, sometimes people say, that it was not really John. Um, but um, 
really tradition is strongly in, in tradition being good evidence for this is strongly for the fact that it actually was written by the apostle john who is not john the baptist okay just in case it's not john the, the baptist um and part of i'll give you one piece of evidence um and if you want more i'm glad to provide more evidence or actually i'll give you two pieces of evidence one there's a lot of internal evidence in the in the text because um, there's quite a few Semitisms. That's not an insult, not insulting the Jews or something. Um, this is when you think in one language, but then you're writing in another. Okay, so like I'll give you a quick example. If one time I went back home and I was speaking in Spanish and I said in Spanish that I had lost weight, okay? Now, that's actually an English expression. In Spanish, you wouldn't say that you have lost weight. You would say that you have decreased your weight. But in Spanish, essentially, I said, perdí peso. I lost weight. And somebody immediately made fun of me. And they were like, oh, whatever. You've been in the U.S. for so long. Then now you say you lost weight instead of like you decreased your weight. And I realized, oh, my goodness, I used an Englishism, if we want to call it like that. I know that's not the real word in Spanish. Okay, well, when you read the Greek, you can tell also that the original writing or the original writer was kind of thinking in, in not, it's not really Hebrew, it's Aramaic. Um, and the other strong piece of evidence is that one of John's students was Polycarp, and then Irenaeus was a student of Polycarp. Okay, so we have kind of this direct chain from John to Polycarp to Irenaeus. In Irenaeus, we have his writings, and he talks about this book having been written by John. Well, it'd be quite strange if Irenaeus did not really know this, since he had a direct connection with the Apostle John. Again, there's more evidence, but, but I, I hope that that's at least kind of sufficient to give you some kind of uh, sense that that's the case. Now, as far as I go, and this is the last thing I'll say, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of open up the discussion. Um, I, I firmly believe that John wrote it. Uh, I believe in the tradition, uh, but it doesn't really make a difference for the meaning of the text. I mean, the text means what it means, whether it was John who wrote it or not, but I firmly believe that it was John. And throughout this study, I'm just going to talk about the Bible like it's true, because I believe that it is true, and I will I will talk as such. If, you, if you're skeptical in your mind, you can insert allegedly in front of all my statements, right? You can be like, allegedly got this, allegedly Jesus this. That's fine. You can insert that. But I believe that it's true and I'll speak of it as such. Um, and um, I was planning on getting to the first five verses of John. That really was my goal. But I'm sorry, I took too long on this other stuff. I was afraid that might be the case. Um, so I'll, I guess I'll open up to questions. We'll see how this goes uh, since it's day one. And starting next week, we just jump into the text and I will try to stick to that. Um, but I hope this was somewhat edifying and, and uh, you know, didactic. Well, thanks, Robert. Uh, we will open up to questions momentarily to the extent that I am technically capable of doing that, which we'll see. But uh, hey, it's my Bible study, so I'm taking the first question. Okay. Um, you mentioned that there aren't, that a lot of the debates over translation tend to be about 
minor or insignificant details and or mistakes like the the rape grape example yeah not just in john but say in any biblical text what is the most significant translation difference that you can think of where maybe it is maybe not as drastic as jesus is the son of god jesus is not the son of god but what's the most significant example you're aware of um the two that come to mind would be at the the ending of mark okay so when you read the gospel of mark um the last like i don't know how many verses i want to say is 10 or 15 verses and maybe the chat there can correct me but that's what's called the longer ending of mark um it in the in the critical text so the text is going to be in your modern bible that longer ending of mark drops out and it is like 10 or 15 verses something like that the other biggest difference that i can think of is there's a very popular story of the adulterous woman who's going to be stoned to death and then you know jesus starts writing on the sand something and then he says that famous phrase you know whoever has no sin cast a first stone that story would also drop out of the bible um, mm. um okay. those are the two now mind you neither neither the longer ending of mark nor that story change christian doctrine one bit but they are sizable chunks of text that, that would drop out. Those are the two that come to mind. Um, the other, to give you another example, I guess, the other one that I'm familiar with is in Luke, for example, there's a verse, and I'm sorry, I cannot give you the citation, uh, but there's one verse that says the only son of God, and perhaps the word only would drop out, perhaps, again, we're not sure, and it would say the son of God. Mm -hmm. And some critics use that to say you see you see it's not really the only son of god jesus is not like special in that way but <laughs> what's silly about that accusation is that in the gospel of luke you have the story of jesus's birth being being born of a virgin by the holy spirit so like even if i take the critics argument at its best essentially if i kind of steel man their argument luke still attests to jesus being this like the one son of God who's born of the Holy Spirit. There's no other person like that. Um, so those are the three examples that I can think of. Okay. Well, thank you for that. As I mentioned at the top, the, I expect this discussion to be a little bit messy, but we're going to try this. Um, if you are interested in asking a question to Robert, I'll ask that everybody stop uh, text chatting for now. We're going to use the chat to facilitate my me unmuting people and getting their questions in so if you're interested in asking a question just write question in the chat as in the word question not your question just write the word question in the chat i will unmute you and uh as a courtesy of course try to um keep your question as brief and on topic as possible and we will get through as many as we can through uh the rest of the hour here Oh, look who's up first. It's that dirty, cheating Red Falcor who somehow cheats his way into the call-in show each and every week. So I'm going to unmute Red Falcor and we'll get going here. Uh, thank you so much, Matt. Yes, I'm well, glad to see to that. I see my... you finally. Holy yes. cow. This is very <laughs> special. Yeah. That's, you know, I was looking forward to this for uh, that reason among a few others too. So this is great. Thank you so much for putting this on you guys um i'm c c curious about the phrase the literal word of god which i know that 
uh, gets kind of bandied about in uh, believer and non-believer circles alike. Uh, oftentimes it is used in uh, non-believer circles to say, uh, look at these crazy people. They think God came down and whispered into somebody's ear or, you know, didn't bother whispering, just spoke to people directly and said, this is what you should write down. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm only going to say this once, take notes. Now, I don't know if you're able to say how common that specific belief is, Robert, among the, uh, among the religious community, um, or if it's, it's a straw man, or if it is, uh, in fact, kind of an accurate representation of, of a biblical thought. In, in at least some circles. Yeah, I mean, I think it's accurate if it's kind of well understood. Um, be, sometimes in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, sometimes God really did, in fact, kind of dictate, right? Think of the Ten Commandments. Like the Ten Commandments, like it's literally God saying, here are your commandments, you know, verbatim. Um, but most of the time, outside of those uh, times, well, or uh, perhaps uh, the other instance would be like in a conversation when it's like, and God told me, and it's literally like a quote, God said X, Y, and Z. Um, but most of the time, when we say it's a word of God, we mean that this is the inspired word of God, that a, a human did write it. So a human person wrote it and it, and the human did affect the text in the sense that, like I'm saying, like John thought in Aramaic, but as he wrote in Greek, he kept these Semitisms, right? These phrases that, that are clearly Aramaic in thought. Um, but the content has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. The, the content has been inspired by God. And so we can rely that the things that are in the Bible truly represent the word of God. They truly represent the, the thoughts of God, so to speak, right? That is reliable. Um, and so that's what we mean when we say it's the word of God. But we do not mean, generally speaking, that God dictated every word, except for those instances that I referenced. Okay. Thanks, Red Falcor. I will uh, catch you soon, I'm sure. Uh, next up is, uh, hey, it's Mr. Dangerous Spaces, our friendly call-in show. Screener man. Let's see if he's uh, ready to go. Um, okay, let's yeah, let's yeah, see how how technically bad I'm going to be at this. I assume you hear no, me. You're loud and um, Go for it. I don't know if this is a question, more of a comment, Robert, just to bring up because I've gone to church my whole life. I've credit my dad's a pastor. I got a lot of experience. Um, and maybe you covered this. I got here late. I got back from grocery shopping. Um, there does need to be a thing that's kept in mind in terms of, and I don't know how many you can think of, Robert of words that it's the same word maybe to us in English, but there can be different versions within the Bible. Now, the one that really jumps out to me is the word love of there's different forms of love that are discussed in the Bible. And the one, I can't remember them all. I'm, I'm a terrible you know Christian at this. Uh, but the one that jumps out is the word Abba, which is essentially in our culture would be when a little kid says daddy to their dad. It's that sort of sort of thing. So it, it is a thing of, you know, sometimes the translation might say love, for example, but there are different versions and it might be something to keep in mind. And I don't know if context is always going to be clear when you're reading it through, but the word love in one context might be completely different to what it means in another context. So 
I don't know, Robert, if you have anything to add to that, but yeah, I mean, that's very true. And honestly, that's why I wanted to start with a discussion of the original Greek, because as we cover the book of John, I mean, pretty much every Saturday, I will be saying, well, in the Greek, blah, blah, blah. Because if we don't understand the original language, if we don't understand the context and the fact that the English and Greek are not truly equivalent, like you just said, like Greek may have five words for love, but in English we have one. Um, it's important that we really look at the original language. So I fully agree. And I really try to get into the Greek. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar. I would say I, I don't know any Greek. I know about Greek, which is very different and it's a much weaker <laughs> knowledge. Uh, but I do what I can. All right. Thank you, Dangerous Spaces. Appreciate it. Uh, next that up works. is LG Smartphone. Let's see if we can get this uh, smartphone to work. Hey. Um, hey, can yeah. you hear me? Yes, yeah. sir. Loud right. and clear. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, my, my, my computer was freaking out, and uh, I just, just had to download it real quick onto my phone. Well, I'm glad um, to know it works on so, phone because, you know, Discord yeah. never does. So maybe Zoom is the way to go. Maybe I need to start using that. Yeah. But Yeah. Uh, anyway. And I, I've been trying... Yeah, anyway, um, so the um, so the I guess it was kind of a more of a comment was about the um, about the different uh, uh, the different changes and the the different uh, passages that are different. Um, the other one that kind of pops into my head is from actually the Old Testament, and it's a it's about whether the army was like 10,000 or 100,000 because of how they counted the numbers. But none of these, first of all, none of these will you find, like they leave it out of your of your book. Uh, any Bible, today you buy in a bookstore or any Bible store worth its salt, they'll talk about it. They'll at least have a footnote. Um, he mentioned the two, uh, Mark, 9, Mark 16 and John um, the passage in John about the adulterous woman caught in adultery and the he without sin, you'll find them there in your Bible in brackets, and you'll find a footnote underneath saying the earliest manuscripts did not contain this. You'll see that with little verses, too. If a little verse is left out, it'll always be down in the footnotes um, because the critics uh, who are anti-Christian and who review a lot of these translations, they're very, very insistent that all of this be like upfront and all of the translators are the same way. All the translators are like, we want to be upfront about this as possible because we want to present the most um, uh, kind of the steel version of scripture that we can. And so all of it will be down there. You'll be able to see it in any, in any study Bible. And, um, and yeah, so that was kind of the, the comment, not so much of a question. Well, yeah, thanks for that. I appreciate that as someone without a lot of um, experience with scripture myself. And Robert, do you have yeah. any commentary on that? Is it like, if I understand you correctly, there aren't a lot of people who are trying to hide the ball necessarily. People are trying to do their best job that they can. That's exactly right. In fact, let me show you what I use. So I use the NET and I, I want you to see that how much scripture and how many footnotes. Um, yeah. I don't know if you can see that. Sorry. I uh, I, it's a little blurry, but I can see a lot of text. So I'll take okay, your word. Yeah. For it. So yeah. all the text on the bottom is footnotes. There's literally five lines of text of <laughs> okay. actual scripture. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, if you, if you pick up any Bible with footnotes, some don't have any footnotes, but most do, I think. Um, they'll cover the text and, and, and tell you about all these differences. Essentially, mm -hmm. there are no secrets. 
And hmm. something I was going to share tonight. If you want to use the NET, and again, I'm not pushing the NET. You use whatever Bible you want to use. Uh, as long as it's not one of the paraphrases. I think those are kind of bad. Um, yeah. You can find the NET online at netbible.org. And the footnotes are also available for free. Um, and they discuss all of these textual differences in the footnotes. So they're really quite good. Well, thanks, Mr. Smartphone. Appreciate it. Okay, we've got time for uh, a few more here. Let's see, Mishael. If I, sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Let me see if I can find you. Uh, Mishael, if you're ready. Yeah, can you hear me? I was having some mic issues. No, loud and clear. How do I okay. pronounce your name so I don't screw it up? Mishael. Mishael. All right, well, yeah. thanks for... Thanks you screwed for, up, um, you screwed up plenty of times on the show. <laughs> Ah, well, I have a nasty habit of that. So, yeah. Um, well, uh, I will commit it to memory and, and thanks for um, tuning in. And, and what's your question? Uh, well, quick, I just want to say thank you guys for doing this. I've been keeping an eye on your journey with uh, reading C.S. Lewis and stuff like that for the past couple of years. So it's oh, really nice. cool to see this happen. So um, I, I just had a quick question. What uh, for Robert, what made you choose the book of John? I've been going like I've been in the church my whole life, but um, I've been talking to some church, uh, leaders and stuff like that. And I've been having a rough time with God. And so, uh, one of the pastors I talked to, he's like, all right, go through the book of John. And that was his first response to it. So why is that the book that you chose for this? The book of John is a great introduction to the Bible and to Christianity in general, because it is very theological. Like it presents both the story of Jesus. And when mm -hmm. I say story, by the way, I mean, like, the facts of Jesus, not, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Sometimes people say it's not a story, it's the truth or whatever. That's okay. Let's all be adults about this. Okay. So it presents the story and the theology kind of alongside it, like what it means, where the other gospels, they're kind of more just factual in the sense that they just kind of tell you the story. And I'm perhaps oversimplifying because if you read, uh, so some of the, the other three Gospels are going to be more aimed towards like a Jewish audience. So they kind of require a lot of background for you to really understand it because we don't have that background today, 2000 years later. Mm -hmm. um, um, so like I said, the book of John, it's it's got both the, the facts and the theology behind it. Uh, so if you read the book of John, you kind of get the full picture. Gotcha. Okay. Well, thanks, Michelle. Yeah, thank you. Uh Yep. Have a great night. Okay. Next up is Joel. Let me find you, Joel. Okay. There we go. Joel, if you're there, go ahead and chime in when you're ready. All right. Um, well, thank you for doing this. Uh, this is the first Bible study that I've been excited to go to in ages. So very happy about that. Sure, um, I had a question and a comment. I'll start with the question. Um, the, uh, the canon of scripture, and uh, i a little fuzzy on my memory on this. Um, I think it was the uh, Nicene Council that looked at the writings of um, the, uh, the apostles and, and decided on which ones would be canonized in terms of uh kind of becoming uh the this the holy writ 
um, of the New Testament. And I was wondering if you knew uh, kind of how they went about deciding on that. Ooh, this is a tough one. Okay. I, um, we probably want one of these days, whenever you'll want to, we can kind of devote more time to the canon. This is probably really like a 10 or 20 minute affair, but let me give you a short answer that hopefully will satisfy you to some extent. Um, the canon really was set, uh, because these were books that were already authoritative at the time. Um, so these were books that the church had already accepted as being kind of the, the, the like I said, the authoritative books. Um, and they eventually kind of closed that list, so to speak. But it's not like they were just picking out of the ether going, oh, I like this and I like this and I like this. They kind of already knew. Um, in fact, in the in the patristic writings, and when I say the word patristic, I mean the church fathers, like the very first famous Christians. Um they pretty much already had a list from the very beginning. Uh, and there's very minor variations in the list. Now, the, you may say, well, how did they come up with the list? The main criteria, I think, could be fairly described as these were the writings approved by the apostles. Okay, So you get two of the gospels are written by apostles themselves, uh, Matthew and John. Uh, shoot. Uh, uh, yeah, Matthew and John. Um, if I get this wrong, forgive me. I really do know this stuff, but I am kind of nervous still. <laughs> but then Matthew and Luke, they're not apostles. Um, they, but they were the writings. Um, they were kind of written at the commission of the apostles. And at the very least, they were approved by the apostles during their lifetimes. Then you get the letters of Paul. You get the letters of John, uh, who right? Paul being an apostle, John being an apostle, the letters of Peter. So it's, it's almost like the hearsay rule in court. They are the writings of people who were there, of people who really did see this stuff, experience this stuff. Now, I know if you know about the canon, and you know that I grossly oversimplify this, but I think that is a fair summary. I hope that helps. Okay. Thank you. Um, the other the comment that I wanted to put out there was uh, for those who, as we talked about uh, the original the original words and how sometimes when you're translating from one word to another, you know, like love having multiple different words in Greek that we just summarize as love, a useful tool if you're wanting to dig into that is a concordance, which is a very very thick book that. For you, you have to get a concordance for whatever translation you're using, but you can actually look up the individual word in the English translation or whatever translation that you're using um, and see for that particular word, the Greek word that they translated as that. So if you're wanting to look at this very specific uh, Greek, or if you're looking in the Old Testament, Hebrew, or Aramaic, you can actually look at the original word uh, for clarification. That's very All true. right. And well, let me you. say one more thing on, on the canon, by the way. Um, sometimes people claim that the canon is made up, you know, the Roman emperor made it up and all this stuff. That's really a bunch of nonsense. The, the, the true controversy when it came to the canon was not uh, whether there was some book that we should include, but whether there was a book that we needed to leave out. What I mean is like the book of Jude almost didn't make it into the canon, but there's not any books out there 
that people thought we should include that they have like some kind of secret knowledge that we're missing out on. Instead, the controversy was, do we have too many books? No, do we have too few? Uh, so there is no kind of secret book out there that's going to change Christianity, if that further helps. All right. Well, thank you, Joel. Let's see. Um, we are right at the uh, top of the hour. You think we can take one more, Robert? Sure. Okay. Uh, next up, is, and last question tonight will be Matthew Gunn. And again, I appreciate everybody's patience. Uh, we are going to keep these limited to the hour, uh, roughly, just as, out of respect for everybody's time. And quite frankly, because, you know, I'm limited in my own time. So I understand that creates frustration potentially with people who are looking to speak and maybe might not be able to. Encourage you to come to the lesson each week, and perhaps you'll be able to offer a thought next time and or I'll be thinking about how to adjust the rules of participation to try to make it as fair to everybody uh, and to get you as many chances to speak as we can. So let's see if we can talk to Matthew. Hello, can and, you hear me? Yeah, you're good to go. Great. <clears throat> Sorry, my Corona's kicking in again. <laughs> All good. Hey, Robert. You're up. Um, I do have a question. It's not going to be about the canon. It's a little more... Um, it's actually an opportunity for you to maybe kind of give us some direction as we go into the next week and as we read those first five verses. Um, just to give a for example, um, within those first five verses, it actually the end of it, it says the light is shown in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm seeing in some other translations that it's not overcome it, but that the darkness has not understood it. Yep. And not to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but as I read a little further down, you know, it seems that that not understanding is a theme that kind of carries into um, the next couple of chapters as well. That's what John is saying to the people who are questioning him about Christ and about his own person. Mm -hmm. um, so my question to you is, are there some other things that you might point out to us as themes that we can be on the lookout for as we're moving into the next weeks? Yeah. Um, and that's a very good comment that you made. Uh, that word is quite tricky. The word translated as overcome could also be understand. So we'll talk about that next week. Um, I think one of the major themes in John is that the, the Pharisees, and we'll talk about who they are in case you're not familiar, they are uh, always talking about the Torah, and the, which is kind of their Bible. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll give more details later. But and. And in the book of John, it seems like Jesus is always replying with, you, you really talk about the Torah, but you're not really doing what, what, it, what it demands. And I am, in fact, doing it, and I am the fulfillment of the Torah. Um, and so the, there is this constant uh, kind of discussion of, hey, the Torah says this, and Jesus saying, hypocrite, and also, I do it, and I am the fulfillment of it. Um, and you'll see a discussion after discussion. Okay. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate it. That'll do it on the uh, commentary tonight, guys. And um, <clears throat> clear my throat here. I will emphasize too, obviously, well, first of all, thank you guys for making this such a success. I had no idea what to expect and how many people and, you know, whether people would be... Um, whether would, there would be any with trolley spirit and that sort of thing. So I appreciate everybody's... Um, uh, good spirited participation and uh, everybody's showing up and I hope you'll continue to. I want to emphasize that Robert and I would like to make this, um, you know, as appealing and beneficial to the group as possible. 
So if you have ideas for maybe how the discussion section might be better handled in particular, I, I'm doing my best at that. But, you know, obviously when the rule is everybody just type in the chat as fast as you can, there might be a better way to handle that. So I'm open to ideas if anybody um, has thoughts on that. You can send me an email and we can figure out how to facilitate discussion the best. And um, uh, and Robert, if you have ideas on that too, it's the class yeah. that you're leading. So I don't mean to usurp your role, but, uh, hmm. but, uh, I want to thank you, Robert, too, cause, uh, you know, it was very interesting discussion and, and, uh, a lot of information packed into the hour. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. And, uh, I'll do better next week. I know I was speaking very fast this week. I am a little bit kind of, I was nervous about this. I'm going to admit to everyone here. I mean, I, I don't even have social media guys. I don't have Facebook. I don't have Twitter. Like I am not like a internet person other than watching Matt's show. <laughs> so, well, I, I, yeah, I think you did a great job and I look forward to seeing how this progresses. And I, I will also say to everybody, if you missed any part of the discussion, um, if you, or if something didn't make sense to you, you need more information. I, uh, again, Robert is making a blog post each week. You can find the full information on the week's lesson. And if you miss any part of the discussion or the full discussion, there will be an audio portion posted immediately after this is done. So you can go back and listen later, but, uh, that will conclude the Bible study for the evening. I appreciate all you guys showing up and, uh, we will catch you again next week. I hope Saturday at uh, 8 PM Eastern time. Have a great night, everybody. Good night.